0: Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up to podcast. Before we get started, I wanna tell you about a group that I'm grateful for and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all non-GMO restaurant in the US a few years ago and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com.
1: Our business is to back transformative entrepreneurs, and if we do that, then there'll be some good out of it.
0: Hi. I'm Adam Kaufman, and you're listening to the Up to Podcast. I've been fortunate for the past 25 years to be serving and working with many of the most successful, most influential leaders in America. About eight years ago, we started Up to as a live event series, which showcased leaders who I thought were as humble as they are successful. For me, the humility piece is very important as we identify these leaders who can hopefully inspire others. Over the years, I've interviewed trailblazers from the fields of medicine, from business, the military, nonprofits, politics, and more, really focusing our interviews on the non-business sides of their lives. In addition to the business pursuits that we often commonly hear about, but we don't talk about much. So frequently attendees of up to asked us to expand the event so that more people could participate and benefit from the dialogue taking place that's why we started this podcast and i'm so glad you're with us today today we're speaking with eric chen eric is a two-time stanford graduate a family man and he's one of the co-founders of tiny prints which was sold to shutterfly in 2010 since then Eric has operated in the exciting world of Silicon Valley venture capitalism. Let's find out what Eric Chen is up to. First of all, Eric, I want to thank you so much for coming all the way to Cleveland from Northern California. Winter is upon us, if you haven't noticed. I'm really excited to have you here today. We'll explore the business side and also some of the personal side. I want to unpack both pieces of it, but let's start with Stanford. I mean, here in Cleveland, not a lot of people go to Cleveland, Stanford, excuse me. Um, but there's something really special, it seems, about that school and that place. Like, how did you end up what many consider to be the best university in America?
1: Yeah, no, well, first, thanks for having me out here in Cleveland. I love being out here. I am uh, I think the um, the weather has been a shock. I'm freezing my butt off from California, but it's great to see a bunch of people out here, for sure. For me, like, you know, my parents are typical uh, first-generation immigrants, being from taiwan it was either you know i'm a i either go to medical school or i'm an engineer and so for those things you know i basically thought that makes sense for those two disciplines and so it was sort of ingrained in me it was like either one of the uc schools where the engineering programs were pretty strong or something back in the east coast i always wanted to do something slightly different so I wanted to get into the business side of things while still focused on engineering. So Stanford had a really good, now it's called a management science engineering program. Back then it was industrial engineering and operations research. And so we've made a bunch of you know trips up there when I was little. And it was sort of the school, it was sort of my dream school growing up. There was something about being at Stanford that was sort of unique I don't know what it is about the school. You can't really put your finger on it. It's hard to describe. But there is something entrepreneurial about that university. Mm -hmm. You get inspired, I think, just by being around the people that have been there before, the companies that have been built, and then some of the the research that's been done in that entire area. It's really fascinating. As I go out there, I travel a ton. But as I go to
0: Northern California to spend time with you and others, and I go to Stanford or, or around Stanford... It's just something intangibly different there. And I was wondering, does Stanford make Silicon Valley more unique or is it the reverse? Is Stanford this amazing place because it's in Silicon Valley? That
1: is a good question. They base they definitely build on each other. It's a nice partnership. For example, I do think the research in the labs at Stanford create a lot of the engine behind the innovation. So it's, A relationship that builds on each other now and and feeds it so these days you see a lot of research being done in the big companies that are influencing what professors and postdocs are doing in the labs so certainly in the area of for example self-driving cars the big car companies as well as tesla and google are influencing a lot of the research out of the ai labs at stanford and these other universities and i think that that makes sense that makes sense like you need funding to do these really long-term research projects. And so the two build on each other. I think Stanford is also able to attract a certain type of student mm-hmm. because the opportunities to do something entrepreneurial are there. I haven't seen any other place where there's
0: such a symbiotic relationship between the graduates who go on to do well and then give back to the school. I know you do mentoring. You love shepherding younger students. And there's so many people who do that there.
1: Yeah, and it's, I think it's the magic of Silicon Valley is beyond just Stanford and a bunch of big tech companies. There are a lot of other things that make the ecosystem work. So I think one of the reasons why it's hard to replicate what Silicon Valley has done is that there's this ecosystem of service providers, angel investors, advisors, mentors. Sunshine. <laughs> and good weather <laughs> that sort of feeds on itself. So to build a company from zero to you know, very, very meaningful business, hundred million in revenue, a billion dollars in valuation is so hard. And you have to overcome so many odds that you need every little advantage. So you need lawyers that know what they're doing. You need investors that can be helpful. You need mentors and advisors that have gone through similar problems. And you need to be able to recruit a bunch of talent. You need
0: talent, yeah. Well, you mentioned how hard it is to build a company, scale it to a sizable valuation. So let's talk a little bit about that. You and... Two of your classmates one of whom is your wife laura did this how did you arrive at a decision to create a company in an in industry greeting cards so to speak that already existed like can you talk about that a little bit how did you come to this decision to start tiny prince
1: yeah so first off there was also another co-founder kelly who was our sort of technical co-founder and then ed laura and i and to be perfectly clear i was only involved for the first three years of that company most of the credit goes to my wife and Ed and Kelly for taking it the rest of the way. For us, it was sort of 2003. It was a really difficult period coming out of the first dot-com era where when we graduated from business school together, we were all of our expectations around the slope of our career trajectory were all off. So we started meeting and talking about different business ideas, took a very process-driven approach. To looking for a business that would be cash flow positive from day one because in 2003 it was actually very difficult for a new team to raise venture capital we had no track yeah, record you guys have no
0: track record so
1: and so we had to look for something where you didn't need a lot of capital to get it off the ground you didn't have to dig yourself a big hole and then you dig yourself out of it and so selling greeting cards turned out to be a pretty good candidate for that one of our co-founders ed was really good at seo and getting free free traffic to the website so we didn't have to spend a lot for customer acquisition too Hmm. that kind of got us going and then because it wasn't so competitive unlike today there would be like five other companies immediately doing something similar and then over time the the returns will normalize because they drop drive up the cost of customer acquisition Uh, you didn't have that sort of competitive nature in at that time so we just had a lot of room to Mm. sort of build the business profitably so that time
0: was seven years and you sold it in 2010 the group of you decided to do that was that a big decision to sell did you contemplate growing it more talk to us about the emotional side of selling this this baby that the four of you created together
1: uh, there's like a lot of different factors. One is sort of competitive, I think. And again, I wasn't involved in like at that point I had to extract myself operationally from the company. But I think you know, it's a number of factors. One is competitive, the um sort of competitive, competitive environment competitive threats. Other people that were better well funded, better capitalized were entering the space. I think another one was sort of the founders have been doing this for a long enough time and we've um we spent enough doing it is Is it something we want to continue to plow forward on? So all those factors come into play. One of the big things we thought about, I think, was the team, the employees played a big role. Yeah, so there were a lot of considerations. So you're being predictably humble, and and that's one of
0: the great things about you. After the sale of Tiny Prints, you began to invest in startups, and that's what led to the creation of the OVO Fund. OVO means egg in Latin— so you decided to focus on the birthing of companies, focusing on founders in tech companies. You have demonstrated a spectacular job of picking good startups. It's a high-risk, high-reward equation in venture investing, but OVO Fund One is ranked in the top five percentile of all venture funds. What do you look for when you're deciding who to pick? Because it's usually pre-product, it's always pre-revenue. Like how do you decide is it is it the people? Is it the product? Is it the market opportunity?
1: We have a couple of rules that we try and stick to, but rules are meant to be sort of guidelines more than rules. The team is the most important thing. So that's probably okay. 90, 95 percent of our decision making is whether or not we we want to work with this team and whether or not we believe that they have both the intelligence and the grittiness factor to uh, to do something fairly transformative. The second thing we look for, sort of, we have to have conviction around the value proposition of the uh, of the product that they that they're trying to build. So we have to believe that they can reach product market fit. So this notion that they're building something useful and valuable for some set of customers. We don't, and when we're investing, we you know there's a lot of unknowns that we don't necessarily focus on, like we don't care too much about what other people are doing, their competitors. And the third one is sort of capital efficiency. We do care that we care that the company can hit a certain product milestone within sort of 18 to 24 months. We have to believe in the market, the end market they're going after, but we don't put a lot of emphasis on market because I think um, our experience has been that at the early stages things tend to shift a lot. So so not any of our companies are doing exactly what they a lot said of pivoting. they're doing. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of experimentation going on, a lot of iterating on the product and the end market. So we've had companies go from, you know, they, they started off trying to be like an ad network and they they pivoted into e-commerce or something. So like completely different concepts. And I think, I think that's just, you know, once that happens enough, we're sort of like, well, the the only thing that really matters is the team (laughs) and making sure they don't run out of money. And so we've been lucky. I mean, we've been lucky to be fortunate enough to be sort of involved in this ecosystem of founders that for some reason just has a higher likelihood of success.
0: Hello, up to listeners. Right now, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm with attorneys throughout Ohio and in Washington, D.C., I'd also like to emphasize how selective we are about organizations with whom we choose to partner for the Up To podcast, and it's with much enthusiasm that we do partner with this law firm that is close to 120 years old. CalFee's mission has been to provide meaningful legal and business counsel to entrepreneurs and investors, private business owners and nonprofits, public corporations. I've referred many successful entrepreneurs and investors to Calfee, knowing how well they'd be taken care of. And it's for those reasons that I would encourage you to visit their website, calfee.com. That's C-A-L-F-E-E.com. Thank you very much to Calfee. You've also been quite willing to share what you call your non-portfolio, your un-portfolio, the things either you missed or passed on Can you give us a few examples of, boy, you wish you would have invested in this company? Yeah,
1: there's a lot of companies. And I think it's anti-portfolio kind of implies that we had an opportunity to invest. It's not that clear. It's more like we chose not to pursue it hard enough. It's still sort of not clear if we could have invested, even if we chose to pursue it hard enough. These are the mistakes that we make as a firm that are hard to get over. We saw Bird, the scooter sharing company, fairly Mm -hmm. early they got kicked out of Cleveland recently. Cleveland I heard. Was so slow you know, to uh,
0: adopt new things.
1: And I think part of that was it was based in LA. And so we didn't, uh, you know, we heard about it through another investor. We didn't pursue it because, you know, it was based down in L- it was based in LA, even though the founder background was something that certainly appealed to us. And then the concept didn't, didn't resonate until I hadn't tried the product yet. I hadn't tried those scooters. Once I rode those scooters around Santa Monica and Venice, kind of a no-brainer at that point. We saw Dollar Shave Club early.
0: Mm. I'm a customer. I love that company.
1: Yeah, I'm a customer now as well. We saw that through another co-investor. And, you know, there were other companies trying to do the same thing at the same time. And, you know, we couldn't tell them apart. So I think, you know, there are a lot of these stories. Yeah, there's a bunch of these companies that... Did you pass on Airbnb? We had an opportunity to invest later stage in Airbnb, and we did not choose to pursue it, yeah. At the time, we were looking at couch surfing there were a couple other companies that were sort of in this um this craziness thing where you know you're letting strangers sleep on your couch yeah it seems like a crazy idea we just didn't believe in the concept yeah yeah so we didn't we chose not to pursue that one as well we saw that come across yeah how do you deal with
0: the responsibility of investing other people's money it's one thing to invest your own but now that you have dozens if not more, investors, does that weigh on you at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, we take the job very seriously because uh, our perspective is we're investing hard-earned money from our LPs, and that's on one side. And then on the other side, we're trying to pick winners from startup entrepreneurs and founders who are pursuing their life's passion, basically. you know, They're trying to do what will ultimately define them. And so it's a big responsibility. I mean, we take that job very seriously and with a grain of humility, I think that it's a very serious job. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think because of the way that the fund is set up, we're a big LP in our own fund. And you invest your own money alongside the investors. Correct. And as do most funds, we just have a big percentage of it. The fund is ours. And and so it because the fund evolved from us from us investing our own capital and we wanted to keep that same mentality where, you know, we're trying to make money for, for us. And so if other people happen to make money at the same time, then that's good. So the, yeah. uh, the incentives are online. I do think there is a risk that, you know, arguably there, there is like in our business, it's, it's the ones that, you don't do that, or the mistakes like we just talked about the anti portfolio. And if you are investing your own capital only, perhaps you might be more inclined to make these riskier bets that are, from a fund perspective, from a portfolio theory perspective, are better. So there's that trade-off, right? Like you, I think, I think you have to be a little bit careful not to fall in the trap of being too institutional when you're managing LP capital, because at the end of the day, your our job is to uh, is to take risk. And to take, you know, careful risk, but to take risk and enough risk that you can get the multiple that people want. And those people are
0: comprised of just individuals. It's not bank money or corporate money. Today, we sat with 12 Clevelanders who are all investors in OVO Fund. And there's 30 of us from Cleveland who are backing you in your second fund. And I think it's a refreshing reminder to hear their questions and their non-Silicon Valley lens at which they look at these things. Do You wanna reflect at all today about what it's like to interact with your non-Northern California investors. Are they different in any way?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, so our LP base is made up of high net worth individuals and family offices from the East Coast, from Asia, from Silicon Valley, and um, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of folks from Cleveland. And I think our LPs are a, a great source of both feedback, deal flow, advice, value add to our portfolio companies. And so, you know, I, I think I enjoy coming out to Cleveland because because it's just different, right? It's, just, it's a different perspective that I get because it is middle, middle of America. And sometimes when we're focused too much on the coast in New York, LA, San Francisco, we get a kind of warped sense of what might work in those markets, in the San Francisco market. But what we really need to test is what's going to work in Cleveland <laughs> if you know what i mean. Yeah. And then i think there are other, you know, like we we do a lot of investing in what we call smart enterprise in in these vertical industries, industry verticals like real estate or construction, trucking, farming. Yeah, agriculture, healthcare even. And in these industries, the sort of innovation isn't necessarily happening just in San Francisco. But what we really need to figure out is what is Cleveland Clinic doing or what is the um, real estate fund in Northern Ohio doing versus in San Francisco and New York. And so the feedback that you know these L- R- RLPs and Cleveland providers is, is pretty helpful. Yeah, so I enjoy coming out here. I can only make it out once a year, but I find it extremely valuable.
0: So let's go back to Northern California where you live. Let's talk a little bit about your family. What is it like To those of us who don't live there, it seems like paradise and I go out for three or four days and the weather's perfect and everyone's friendly and the coffee shops are lines out the door with people. What's it like raising a family there? You have two wonderful children I've gotten to know. Is it all rosy or are there pressures that maybe we don't see or in terms of managing like an entitlement attitude or pressures in schools? Can you reflect a little bit about what it's like raising young children there?
1: Well, I mean, it's the same challenge, I think, because, you know, I've talked to other people in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and I think it's challenging raising kids in any environment. But, you know, I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I think the Bay Area has its sort of downsides, but it also has a tremendous amount of positives, a lot of things going for it, too. The proximity to innovation, the weather is great. Like, you can um, you can go surfing in Santa Cruz, in the morning and then drive up to Tahoe in the evening type of thing. So I think like there are just a lot of um, resources available to, to kids that, that we try and take advantage of. So those things are all helpful. Like a lot of other sort of big cities, big metropolitan areas, there is a lot of pressure. A lot of the community is just sort of type A in nature. Mm-hmm. And so I think we fall into that trap a lot as well. I definitely see that as a visitor. Yeah, and so, you the know. The parents are
0: intense about <laughs> the kids' school process and activities. and
1: I mean, you kind of feel pressure to do the same, to keep up. So it's this sort of cycle that is hard to get off of. But I think there's been more and more people sort of talking about the issue, at least. So it's it's, it's become cool. it's become top of mind because there's been a lot of negative stuff going on with, you know, with kids, you know, having different problems in high school and even um, even shockingly like suicide rates and mm. things like that. That are just fairly things that should be preventable. And I think the the best part is that I think people are aware of it now.
0: The awareness is the silver lining. I'm sure I. I've enjoyed watching your daughter become a budding soccer star. And a shout out to your son who's got Nate's food blog. All of our listeners should check out Nate's food
1: blog. How old is Nate? Nate is 13. He has a food blog. It's only a matter of time before he figures out that instead of writing the blog post, he can just take pictures. Posted on Instagram, <laughs> which is a lot easier.
0: I love his narratives, though. Too, I mean, the, his words are great. <laughs> Do you ever think about popcorn? Or you know, he writes in the voice of a young person, but it's great stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think I think he's interested enough to try and figure out. Well, maybe I can sell advertising. That's what he uh, always asks me. Can I make money off of my blog? Mm. I say you need more than two hundred people every <laughs> day.
0: <laughs> oh, he's got a good mentor, though. I'm <laughs> thinking about the kids. I'm now thinking a little bit about legacy and David Brooks gave a great TED talk a couple of years ago about two documents, your resume and your eulogy, and which do you spend more time working on, your resume or your eulogy, and I
1: think about that a lot now, so I must be getting old. Do you think about legacy that much? Well, that's interesting, like I think if you talk to my wife, she'll be like, I'm, I'm the least reflective person she knows. That's why we're doing this conversation today. <laughs> yeah, so um, the answer is probably no, I, I haven't, um, I think I've come to the conclusion that I kinda have to just go about my business. Long term planning is sort of not something that I can control. There's a lot of luck in what we do. So that's I think that's on the business side. I, I would like to do what I can though to move the ball forward in, in terms of increasing access to capital for entrepreneurs that wouldn't fit the profile, in other words. So like in our portfolio, we do we do have a number of founders who are minorities or women. And we don't do that on purpose. We don't advertise it. It just we just kind of do what we do. And part of it is I think we're looking for better returns. So if if we find entrepreneurs that don't fit your typical profile, they don't look like Mark Zuckerberg as an example, but they're just as talented, we think that's an arbitrage opportunity for us to make money. And if and I think for us, if that also pushes access to capital and that's good for us. So I think that's one thing that we would like to, I would like to leave as a legacy is, is being able to fund entrepreneurs uh, that are doing amazing things. I mean, these guys are the heroes, these guys and gals are the heroes ultimately. And if we can fund a few more of them Mm -hmm. um, that otherwise wouldn't have the access to capital, then then we'll have played a small part. And then as, as far as our kids go, I think, you know, I think as any parent, we're no different. We, we just want our kids ultimately to be happy, right? So they have access to opportunities that a lot of other kids wouldn't. But ultimately, I think our success will be defined by how happy our kids are. And that's, that's something they got to figure out.
0: I think you do more on legacy than you realize. I know you've been a coach of your son's basketball team. I know you support your alma mater. I know you mentor some students at the university. So don't be too hard on yourself. You are, if not thinking about it, you are creating a legacy somewhat so far.
1: Yeah, it's possible at the end of it, there'll be a collection of things that I get credit for, mm. but, but like our, our business is to back transformative entrepreneurs. And if we do that, then uh, there'll be some good out of it. And all those things we do, the mentoring, giving back to the community, those are all in our opinion, good. It's good business. It is good business. So this stuff is aligned to us. It's been proven that. Yeah, it's
0: been proven that a diverse collection of entrepreneurs and a diverse company can perform well. There's a a lot of truth to that. One time when I interviewed you at a live Up To event, I asked you if I was speaking with your, I think at the time, 10-year-old son, Nate, at the time. And I asked him, what's most important to dad? What would Nate say? Do you remember me asking you that? I do. I do. And do you remember what your answer was then? I think it was, Nate would say that the most important thing to me was probably my cell phone. Right. But you were working on that, you said, in front of the audience. So how, how is that going now? Would he say something differently now?
1: I think so. I think so. Like, I, um, I mean, st- I'm still guilty. It's funny. My wife and I just talked about this, but we're conscious about it. So when, when I get home, as soon as I wrap up my work, it's sort of, you know, family time and then um, I try and spend as much time as I can with the kids until they go to bed, and then, then I can hop back on. Yeah, they're pretty good. We're pretty good about having some good barriers now. It's hard. I know it's hard
0: in this uh, on-demand society that we're all in, and once, once we do reply to people quickly, that becomes the expectation that we're always going to do that. <laughs> I, I struggle with that as well. If you could go back in time now, that's about half your life ago, what advice would you give that younger version of yourself? What advice would you give to a twenty-five-year-old Eric Chen?
1: Yeah, no, that's good. I think I probably would have said to not be so concerned about sort of financial security at that time. Cause I kinda realize in retrospect, there's a um, you have a lot of freedom when when you're young. All you really need is to, you know, you have your food habit, right? <laughs> you have to you have to eat. have to have a place to stay, but that's pretty much it. And I think, you know, I was very concerned about like, you know having financial security so I could do other things. But I think the most important thing to optimize for back then is learning. And like in investment banking, I do think you learn a ton in your first year. Like I learned so much about finance, corporate finance in that first year. But the second and third years are kind of, you know, like you pretty much learn everything you need to know about investment banking in a couple of years. And everything else is sort of just um, relationships and how well you execute, how hard you work. And I think I would have optimized for learning. Um, In other words, I would have, I could have done something earlier where I could have learned a lot more things because there's so much to learn when you're young.
0: So less worried about financial, job security, and just more absorbing, taking it all in, being a sponge. Correct,
1: yeah. I think that, And I, the other thing is, that, you know I was fortunate to have really good mentors and associate, VP level, manage, my managing director at Salman Brothers were all great. They taught me a bunch every year. And so I think finding the right person to sit down with you that will teach you everything that they know is sort of the most important thing so finding the right person is really really important well they taught you a lot and today Eric you've taught us a
0: lot so thank you so much for sharing with us some of your observations and experiences we're grateful
1: yeah thanks for inviting me to this up to podcast I think this is a great idea you're sort of the the Oprah of Cleveland and I'm glad you didn't make me cry
0: that'll be next time thanks Eric Reflecting on today's conversation with Eric, there are a few impressions really sticking with me. I thought I'd share them with you. Number one, by placing ourselves around others who are achieving great things, we can't help but be inspired. Number two, different perspectives broaden our thinking and strengthen our own analysis. Be careful to not develop warped views by staying just in our own comfort zones. Number three, our success as parents will be defined by how happy our kids are. I really like that he didn't say how successful our kids are, but rather happiness. Number four, don't be so worried about financial security when starting out. As a young professional, optimize for learning. The responsibilities will come later. And number five, finding the right mentor is really important. I'm Adam Kaufman and I'd like to thank you for joining us on this UpTo podcast. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed today's episode and I encourage you to subscribe to our new show wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us at uptofoundation.org. A special thank you to the law firm of Calfee, Halter and Griswold for their role in making this podcast possible. Visit them at www.calfee.com for further information, and to our friends at Town Hall. You can learn more about their restaurants by visiting townhallohiocity.com. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producers, Bridget Coyne and Sarah Wilgrub, our account manager, Connor Standish, and our audio engineers, Eric Coltonow and Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, Thank you for listening to the Up To podcast.